Welcome to another edition of Chatting with Ingram, or more appropriately, Ingram Chatting with You. I'm Philip Ingram, and I'm doing a short series of short podcasts looking at the current Russian-Ukraine crisis. Um, from my perspective, uh, as a former senior British military intelligence officer, you know, I spent many years looking at Russian tactics, Russian-style tactics, um, and uh, what could stimulate a conflict or not, so to speak. Um, and today I want to talk about that very thing, um, intelligence, because intelligence is key to understanding Russia's intentions. Your last week, the US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that the US is not certain that Putin has made his final decision to invade Ukraine, but it may well happen soon. Ben Wallace, the UK Secretary of State for Defence, told the Sunday Times um, at the weekend, last weekend, that Russia invading Ukraine is highly likely and warned that the military presence on the border has now reached such a size that they could launch the offensive at any time. The UK Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, has repeated this message over the last couple of days. Wallace cancelled his planned long weekend holiday last weekend. So the question on everyone's lips is how? How do we know what Russia is going to do? And the only way to answer that question is through good intelligence. And the overriding caveat I'll put on everything and everything intelligence, is it's not an exact science. Really easy to criticise with 2020 hindsight once you know what has happened, but remember the intelligence game is all about trying to have 2020 foresight and predict what is going to happen. But there are certain indicators that would point to um, more of a, an invasion than a bluff, and these are the sorts of things I'll explore in a little bit more detail. So how do we know what's going on at the moment? Well, I'll do another podcast on examining the intelligence gathering effort um, so that you can get a bit of an understanding about the different platforms. But there, there are a few things I want to pull out um, as background to this podcast. Uh, the first is, how do we know there are over 100,000 troops uh, and the right equipment to invade Ukraine? Well, the first thing is open source intelligence. Uh, Russia's declared it's carrying out manoeuvres in Belarus. It's put TV pictures up about it. It's put broadcasts up about it. It's put it on social media um, uh, and uh, in training areas around the Ukrainian border. Um, they've also put areas in the Black Sea out of bounds for naval exercises, manoeuvres. Um, and therefore, we know from the Russian government themselves that they're doing something. Next, we have what's being posted on social media um, by the general public. Videos of convoys, trains full of equipment, soldiers leaving their home bases, and more. However, what must be considered with anything that comes from open source is it could be being posted deliberately to mislead. The great Chinese general and philosopher from the 6th century, Sun Tzu, um, said in his book The Art of War, all warfare is based on deception, and hence, when we are able to attack, we must seem, seem unable when we're using our forces, we must appear inactive. When we're near, we must make the enemy believe we're far away. When we're far away, we must make him believe that we are near. The Russians have a doctrine called Maskarovka, which is all about masking or deception, and is central to all they do. They follow the philosophy laid down by Sun Tzu. And therefore, we have to very carefully and very critically examine every statement that we see coming out, whether it be from the Russian military, the Russian Ministry of Defence, from uh, press or from politicians, uh, Putin himself. Everything that he does will have been designed to have an effect and everything that he does will have an element of Maskarovka so that we don't understand his real intentions. 
Analysis of vehicle and aircraft types, badges on soldiers' uniforms, uh, vehicle registrations, what symbols we can identify on the vehicles to potentially identify the units and therefore where they're coming from, geo-referencing the imagery from uh, and from that, comparing it with historical data to see whether what is happening on the ground is uh, usual activity, alongside looking at um, private social media posts from Russian military personnel. Uh, and all of this will be looked at for indicators, whether those are indicators of what is actually going on on the ground or indicators of Maskarovka. Both will be being examined very carefully indeed by the intelligence agencies. Now, this open source intelligence will be fused with imagery intelligence from satellites and aircraft and measurement and signature intelligence, or MAZINT, uh, gathered from satellites, drones and fixed-wing aircraft all flying along the border, staring into Russia and Belarus with special radars um, the Mazint tends to use. And these radars can see anything in the open, including equipment that's been hidden in forests or under camouflage nets. And the numbers of pieces of equipment and where they are can be counted regularly and see if there's any changes. Change detection is key to um, monitoring the intelligence picture. It can also be used to identify what types of equipment there are. Um, and in turn, from the numbers of pieces of equipment and the, and the types, it'll indicate either the unit or the formation that um, is potentially deployed to that area. The same radars can track convoys and trains moving in real time, and they can distinguish between military equipment um, and military traffic on the roads from civilian traffic. Other sensors can see if the equipment has been moved recently and how long ago, and often be able to identify where it's moved to. What is key here is identifying what formations are where and uh, what they are doing. So if the deployment is being billed just as a training exercise on home territory, are all the formations and units participating in that training? Or are there some not participating? What are they doing? What are the ones that have got traditionally the best levels of training and the best equipments? What are they doing? Because not every formation or unit is equal. What is happening to the unit and formation's logistic trails as they move and train? Do these logistic trails match what you'd normally see for practice manoeuvres or exercises? Or are they larger? You would not use as much ammunition um, on manoeuvres as you would need for operations, or as many medical facilities, or as many spare parts for armoured vehicles. So are these natures pre-dumped anywhere? If so, where? Next, we'll be looking at um, supporting units and formations, communications networks, air defence, air support, artillery, as well as intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, ISR capabilities. The questions are, uh, what has been deployed to where and with what? For purely manoeuvres or exercises, you don't need large numbers of live anti-aircraft missiles or artillery ammunition stocks um, that you would need for offensive operations, or the balance of ISR assets or the communications networks that are deployed to control multi-levels of ground offensive capabilities and integrate it with air support, ISR feeds and logistic networks over the same sort of geographical footprints. So the footprint of the communications network will suggest whether you're preparing for exercises and manoeuvres or preparing for operations. Looking at this from our perspective will be satellites, RC-135 rivet joint aircraft, J-Stars, Global Hawk long-range, long-endurance unmanned aerial vehicles and other surveillance platforms will be hoovering up all of the information needed to work all of this out. Networks need to be tested, comms checked, radars positioned and tested, aircraft systems checked. No matter how good your comms plans are uh, at suppressing emissions, you can never suppress them all. Things have to be switched on and switched off. It will be 
picked up and each emission is an indicator of what it is that's out there. That is why on a daily basis all of these platforms are flying and hoovering everything up. Air capability will play an important role. For manoeuvres, you need an awful lot less than you would need for offensive operations and different types of aircraft uh, and certainly different weapons. Numbers and types of aircraft will be critical. The first thing any Russian offensive operation would want to do is what's called SIAD, suppression of enemy air defences. In this case, the Russian enemy would be the Ukrainians and what they'd want to do is destroy Ukraine's ability to track and shoot down Russian aircraft so Ukrainian air assets would also be targeted and then the ground offensive offences begin. SIAD would be carried out through a combination of special forces, attack helicopter, indirect fire, usually from long-range uh, missiles, and special SIAD aircraft that will carry anti-radiation missiles and, and, and other things, as well as ground-based and air-based electronic warfare or jamming capabilities. These are not the sorts of things that you would necessarily need, use and switch on in manoeuvres. Um, so again, our key indicator. So where are the assets needed to do this? Um, how ready are they? Uh, and what are they equipped with? You know, are these anti-radiation missiles, are the EW assets deployed in the field? These capabilities would need to ensure safe corridors to all Ukrainian air assets for Russian aircraft going in to attack Ukrainian air bases and ground formations. So even if there was a geographically limited invasion of Ukraine, air defence and air assets across the whole country would have to be targeted because you know, aircraft can be brought to bear very quickly indeed. Um, it would be highly unusual for these assets to be grouped and deployed in sufficient numbers just for exercises. So have the Russians got them and where are they? Alongside all of these physical indicators, communications will be being listened to. Um, whether that is over military communications means or civilian means, the technology to intercept and often decode already exists. And most of these airborne platforms that I mentioned earlier have the ability to hoover up those signals. This will be a clear understanding of the quality of military communications, the readiness of units and formations, and some will give indications of intent. However, communications can also be used for Maskarovka. Another layer on top of this are the human intelligence or human assets at the strategic level running agents into the decision-making organisations in Moscow or military command headquarters and elsewhere, and the more tactical uh, people reporting what's going on on the ground. But good human assets can get a real understanding of the thinking and intent, but getting good human agents with the right access is a massive challenge. What must be considered at all times is that lovely word I've mentioned a couple of times, maskarovka. I do like the way it sounds. All of this could be huge, expensive bluff. And we have to remember that you know, during the Second World War, uh, the preparation for D-Day, the Allies had Operation Fortitude, where amongst other things, they created a fake army with a real commander, fake tanks, fake aircraft, fake radio transmissions, and fake spies with fake plans delivered to the Germans in a very novel way through Operation Mincemeat, something that you should go and read about. And I understand they're making a movie about it soon, but absolutely fascinating. Uh, we knew what the Germans were looking for, and we provided it to them. The Russians know what we're looking for, that is partially why the intelligence game is very complex. They could be providing us what we, th what they think we want. Uh, this is all part of Maskarovka. However, the subtle military indicators with the sophisticated collection capabilities that we have today compared with what existed during World War II will give a much clearer picture of the readiness and intent. Our intelligence officers must avoid groupthink and trying to fit what they're seeing into someone else's plan. You have to think of everything objectively. 
this is what our politicians are being briefed and for them to order citizens out of the country and for the Secretary of State for Defence to cancel his personal holiday, the indicators suggest that an invasion is more likely than not. I've examined the why and what the possible objectives could be from Putin's perspective in other blogs on, on previous podcasts. Um, they can all be accessed through uh, this channel or um, at greatermedia.com. My conclusions today uh, haven't changed. They were when I wrote those and I started I started writing them uh, weeks ago. There are so many other possible indicators such as status and loading of Russian naval vessels, the defensive posture of the Kaliningrad Oblast uh, and around Russian naval bases in Syria, uh, the northern Baltic and Pacific fleet bases. But to examine them would be uh, an awful lot of work uh, and a book or a very long podcast to try and describe them. However, the bottom line conclusion, we're seeing one of the most dangerous complex political and military events in Europe since the Cold War, or even before that. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this, please feel free to share. Go to greyhairmedia.com and read the blog versions. Um, And I look forward to chatting to you again soon.